0: All right, let's um, begin our time and just open in a word of prayer, and then we'll get our time started. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. What a blessing it is that we're all here and we can gather together to to just learn, learn about what it means to, to understand your word, how we can know the meaning of it, for we know that you gave us your word so that we can understand it. And there seems to be, at least in in the religious world of our world, so much confusion as to what your word means. So help us, Lord, over the next several weeks to to be able to uh, learn what you have for us, to discern these things, put these things into practice in our own life. I know that there will be a challenge for, for us as we learn and uh and yet you are faithful to teach us and to help us. So we thank you for that. Bless each one that's here. Bless our time together. May it be a time of, of joy and a time of, of great uh, learning so that you might be glorified in us as we study your word individually and together. And that uh, others might know Jesus Christ, our Savior. So We thank you for that. We ask your blessing on tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Somebody asked me uh, as I was starting, there must be a special speaker tonight. I said, yeah, I'm still waiting for him to arrive. Um, it's great to have you all here. Of course, you're here because uh, we announced this class, hermeneutics. And so we want to talk about that a little bit tonight. Of course, the syllabus you have in your hand is uh, doesn't have all the things that I'm going to talk about in there. There are spaces for you to write answers and things like that down as we go through it. Um I spent the last several months trying to put this together and, and really bringing together syllabuses that I had from my seminary education, plus books on hermeneutics that I have and these kind of things and, and other helpful things uh, from uh, mentors and, and friends of mine who have taught this course in the past, as well as put things together. So that's what you have in front of you. And we're going to go through that over the next several weeks as we, begin tonight, I just want to kind of introduce the whole idea why hermeneutics, you've probably heard the statement, or you maybe you've even made the statement in your own life when you're talking to someone else, can't we just agree to disagree? How many have made that statement or heard that statement? Certainly you have, right? Can't we just agree to disagree? Well, Well, that's great when we're talking about the kind of tires you put on your car and you feel these ones are better than the other ones. And some friend is saying, well, I like these ones better than those ones. And, and you can't come to an impasse as to the best ones And you, well, can't we just agree to disagree? Well, sure. But when it comes to the issues of life giving truth, when it comes to the issues that, that we are going to base our life upon, uh, and we're talking about the truth of the Bible that answer doesn't work. We can't just get together with one another and simply say, well, can't we just agree to disagree? People use that oftentimes when it comes to the doctrines of eschatology or the end times, because there seems to be in the realm of eschatology so much confusion in the world of evangelicalism about that. And so people go, well, can't we just agree to disagree? Well, that's a nice sentiment. It's, it's sometimes helpful for us if we're going to think about the relationship with one another. But the reality is when it comes to the Bible, there's a right and a wrong. There's a right and a wrong. We can't both be right if we're not saying the same thing that God says because God meant it to mean what God meant it to mean. And so we can't just settle at the reality of, can't we just agree to disagree? Somebody's wrong, and we, as Christians, want to know what is right. Not just, wow, let's just both walk away confused. We don't want that. Well, that's where hermeneutics comes in. And so tonight, I just want to kind of introduce the whole subject really to us and, and give us a definition uh, of hermeneutics to start out with. Let's see if this thing will work for me. There we go. What is hermeneutics? Of course, in your notes, you have uh, some of this there. One author, Bernard Rahm, uh, Wrote a book on hermeneutics, and he says in there, Hermeneutics is the science and art of biblical interpretation. The science and art of biblical interpretation. Interpretation has to do with meaning, and to properly interpret the Bible, one must have a correct hermeneutic. I would even say that every problem that comes when it comes to a discussion and a different viewpoint about a text boils down to the kind of hermeneutic you might be using to understand that particular text. Rom goes on to say, as a theological discipline, hermeneutics is the science of the correct interpretation of the Bible. It is a special application of the general science of linguistics and meaning. Now don't let the word linguistics scare you because here linguistics really is talking about in the most general sense grammar. Now, I know that scares us because the last time most of us heard anything about learning about grammar was in tenth, ninth or tenth grade, and we forgot everything we ever learned there, and English grammar scares us, but we have to know some basic truths about English grammar if we're going to understand the scripture. Okay, So there's a special application he talks about in, ge- in the general science of linguistics and meaning, which seeks to formulate those particular rules which pertain to the special factors connected with the Bible. That's how Rom describes it. My seminary professor, Jim Roskup, to find it this way, hermeneutics determines the methods, the techniques, the rules, or the principles that will best serve in determining the proper interpretation of any portion of Scripture. So it doesn't matter what kind of uh, book we are reading in the Bible, whether it's Genesis all the way through to Revelation, these principles are put into practice so that we can come away with the correct interpretation. Of the Bible, of course, Dr. Jim Roskup was looking at his definition through the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology because that's exactly how they define hermeneutics. Hermeneutics determines the methods, the techniques, the rules, and the principles that will best serve in determining the proper interpretation of any portion of scripture and of course, they go on to say. That the Bible the reason that is the case is because the Bible is an ancient document. right? It was written in different languages, in Hebrew and in Aramaic and in Greek, in the original manuscripts, and it was written in various times uh, between 1200 BC and about 100 AD. That's a long time, about 13, 1,400 years. Over that period of time, the scriptures were given to us by God through men. And so that reflects a lot of history and a lot of cultural differences and a lot of different cultural settings that we have no real context for without studying those ourselves. So they go on to say a basic requirement for the understanding of those kinds of documents is the grammatical historical interpretation and they go on to say, or exegesis. And I, I typically wouldn't add that in there as a part of a definition of hermeneutics, although exegesis is really what you're doing when you're exercising the principles of hermeneutics. Exegesis is just taking out of the scriptures the meaning of scriptures, if I can give just a basic, raw definition of exegesis. Bringing out of the text the meaning that the writers intended to convey. So we're going to be looking at the historical grammatical process of hermeneutics. Um, Studying those principles of interpretation so that we can understand what God means by what he says. Of course, there's other definitions. Milton Terry... Another theologian who wrote on hermeneutics says hermeneutics is both a science and an art, much like Bernard Rahm said. He said, as a science, it enunciates principles, it investigates the laws of thought and language, and classifies its facts and results. So hermeneutics, as you can see, is a science. It is the science of interpretation, the science of putting into practice the rules that that we're going to go over over the next several weeks in order to understand and elucidate exactly the meaning of the scriptures. Roy Zuck, another theologian, says hermeneutics is the science and art of interpreting the Bible. Another way to define hermeneutics is this, Is the science or principles and art the task by which the meaning of the biblical text is determined? And then he gives a couple examples in his book one about playing football. If you play football, you have to play by the rules, or you're not playing football. Same with any kind of board game or anything like that. He talks about it. He says if you're going to play those things, then you have to play by the rules or you have missed the process. You have missed doing it the way it should be done. You have a wrong interpretation of the game. So the one thing I kind of want to drive into our minds as we, as we go over the next several weeks uh, together, probably months because this is every other week, is if we don't get the meaning that God intends then we don't have God's Word. Think about that. If we don't understand the text of Scripture the way God intended it to be understood, then we don't have God's Word. We have something we've made up, and that's then our Word, not God's Word. And we want to have God's Word because God's Word is authoritative. God's Word is truth. God is an infallible, without error, God. And so he has given us what he has given us so that we might understand what he has said. So that's the definition. That's the overall look, the overall definition of hermeneutics. Any any questions about that? as we start if you have a question too just kind of raise your hand flag me down somehow and so i can make sure we answer those questions anybody have a question about what hermeneutics is i know i'm going to i'm going to throw out some words larger than maybe sometimes we're used to hearing theological terms and things like that over the next several months and so if you have a question about that you don't understand that there is no stupid question in here so just ask it Everybody else who doesn't want to ask the question is wondering why somebody else won't ask it so that they can understand the question. So just ask it. You be the one. You ask the question. So that's the definition of hermeneutics. So what's the relationship then of hermeneutics to other theological disciplines? What's the relationship of hermeneutics to other theological disciplines? And we want to talk about canonization just for a minute. Canonization is how we got to have the Bible that we have, the canon of Scripture. Canon is simply an early Greek manuscript. Let me see if it'll go up there. There we go. It's an early Greek term, meaning rod or, or a measuring stick. That's what canon means. So when you hear someone say the canon of Scripture, that's what they're talking about. It's a measuring stick. The, the canonical Bible is our rule. It is our standard for understanding faith and practice. What we mean when we say this is the canon of Scripture. This is, this is our rule for how we live, for the faith that we have. A study of the canon looks at then the determination and the recognition of the books of Scripture. In other words, which books God intended to belong in the Bible. There's a reason that we have 66 books in the Bible. Right? The Hebrew text from the Old Testament is the 39 books of the Old Testament, and then we have 27 books of the New Testament. I'll just give you an interesting, funny way to remember that if you don't remember how many books are in each Testament. Okay? You'll never forget it after this. Well, maybe you will, but remember this. This is how many books are in the Old Testament. How many letters are in the word Old? Three. Just read it. I'll give it to you. <laughs> Guess how many letters are in the word Testament? Nine. Old Testament. Thirty-nine. Thirty-nine books in the Old Testament. Guess how many letters are in the word new? Three. Guess how many in the word testament? Nine. Nine times three is twenty-seven. Thirty-nine in the Old, twenty-seven in the New. Sixty-six books in our Bible. That's for free, no charge for that. Okay, so you have canonization, right? So it's determining the books. And hermeneutics is a process that, that helps figure all this out. You have, secondly, textual criticism, right? Textual criticism takes the text of Scripture, decides the words of Scripture. And that doesn't mean it's deciding that this word is Scripture this word isn't Scripture. In one sense, it is deciding what words were in the original manuscripts of the Bible that we do not have. There are no original manuscripts of the Bible. Right? So which words are properly part of the text is what we're talking about when we say textual criticism decides the words of Scripture, right? So there are, in we'll see it in a minute, there are a lot, thousands of copies of the original manuscripts, and some of those have extra words and extra things in them that that should not be there, and so they take that and compare all of those kinds of things. One way they do it is through higher criticism, which is used by liberal scholars. And liberal scholars deny the inspiration and the inerrancy of Scripture. So liberal scholars come to the Bible, they deny that, that, is, that it's an inspired book, which it is by God's Spirit, as Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 21 tells us. And they deny that it is inerrant. In other words, the Bible can have errors. That's what they say. These are liberal scholars that say that. And so when they do that, they undermine the veracity and the reliability of the scriptures. And so there's lower criticism. Lower criticism is used by, of course, conservative scholars to ensure that the Hebrew and the Aramaic and the Greek texts remain true to the earliest and most reliable texts that we still have as copies. So you have canonization, you have textual criticism. There are some 25,000 copies of the Bible. And I don't mean the copies that we have that are printed in the store, I mean copies of the original manuscript. 25,000 copies. There are not the originals, but we have copies of that, and 5,000 copies just of the New Testament. The earliest manuscript of Mark, by the way, the Gospel of Mark is around 325 A.D. 325 A.D. Non-canonical words were added oftentimes to the later translations and the compilers of the bible would sometimes add words to those because of the difficulty of copying we couldn't just take a paper and take it into the copy machine and get 50 copies of something right they had to sit down with a with the original manuscript or a copy of the manuscript that they had from the original manuscript and copy it word for word hand for hand well in Hebrew at those times, there, was, there are no vowels in the original Hebrew language. Only consonants. And there's no space between the consonant letters when they write something. So it's just one continuous writing of Hebrew letters. Well, you let your eyes look at that for a while. You put ink on the bottom of a sparrow's foot and let it walk across paper. Sometimes that's what Hebrew letters look like. Well, that that gets rather tedious. And so oftentimes one line might get copied and become another line, or the word at one end would become the word at the first. And so you have those kinds of things. And the only way to, to be able to tell the difference in those is to compare copies. And you get back to the oldest and earliest manuscripts and compare those copies with those that were brought later and see differences. And so linguists do that, over time. Well, there's one other kind of criticism historical criticism. Historical criticism. Of course, historical criticism decides what is the, the framework, what's the setting within which the words of the Bible were fitted when they came about historically. What was the setting in which it was written? <clears throat> right? Determining the historical setting for us then helps us to understand the words and the phrases. For example, just go for a moment in your Bible to Ecclesiastes 12... Ecclesiastes 12 is poetic writing. That's the kind of genre or kind of text that it is. Ecclesiastes, and and he's writing here in chapter 12 about getting old. He's writing it in a poetic sense. Remember also, verse 1, chapter 12, verse 1, remember also your Creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near when you will say, I have no delight in them. Before the sun, the light, the moon, the stars are darkened, the clouds return after the rain. In the day that the watchmen of the house tremble and the mighty men stoop, the grinding ones stand idle because they are few and those who... Look through windows, grow dim, and the doors on the street are shut in the as the sound of the grinding mill is low, and the one will rise at the sound of the bird, and all the daughters of the song will sing softly. You read that and go, "What in the world is he talking about? Well, if you don't know the the historical setting, the historical background of all of this, and his history of writing any Ecclesiastes and the poetic nature of Ecclesiastes, you come away with all kinds of ideas. And yet he's simply talking about growing old. Growing old. And he just continues on with that. And verse 8, he finally gets to the end, which is the theme throughout the entire book of Ecclesiastes. Vanities of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. In other words, it doesn't matter. Well, the way in which you grow old, everybody grows old and it, the same kinds of things happen. Well, if you don't know the history of Ecclesiastes and you don't know who wrote Ecclesiastes and you don't know that historical criticism about the book itself, then you will look at that and go, well, I, I don't know what that means. I'll just close that up and And you'll be talking to your friend and you'll say, can't we just agree to disagree? Ezekiel 18. We could turn to just about let our Bible flop open in any one place and and come up with with an example of these kinds of things. But Ezekiel 18, verse 2. What do you mean by using this proverb concerning the land of Israel saying... The fathers eat the sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge. <laughs> I mean, this is God saying that to Israel. What, what, what do you mean by that? I mean, we could sit here and say, if if we were doing Bible study without any kind of hermeneutical understanding of what's going on, well, what's that mean to you? And we'd come up with all kinds of philosophical ideas about what that might mean, and we'd probably have sixty-five different answers to it. Right? But we know this when we understand the context and we understand the history of Israel and we understand what's going on in the prophecy of Ezekiel. We know this that Ezekiel's talking about Israel saying that the fathers do the sin and children are punished for it. Trouble runs downhill in many ways. Right? God judges each generation for their own sin. That's the idea. All of that is, is, is an outflow of, of a historical criticism because people have taken the time to look through the history and brought that down so we can understand that. Exegesis, of course, I mentioned that earlier. Exegesis is just the drawing out of something. Exegesis is the application, if you will, of the methods of hermeneutics to the text, so that you can bring out the actual meaning. So, exegesis and hermeneutics are very closely related. Very closely related. And then, of course, another few things that are uh, affected by hermeneutics is exposition or the explaining of the text. Right when you understand a text and you begin to speak about that text, you are expositing that text, expositing that meaning. Either the words or the the uh, uh, sentence, the meaning, its implications for us today, that's exposition. Don't mix that up with another term that you might hear or as you read hermeneutics books and things, don't mix it up with homiletics. Hermeneutics and homiletics are two different things. Hermeneutics is the science of interpretation. Homiletics is the art of exposition. The art of exposition. And that can be done whether you're teaching a Bible study, talking to your friend, Or anything like that. So that's what we're talking about in under F, homiletics and pedagogy, which is just the science and the art of taking the meaning of a text and bringing it out, helping people understand the relevance of that. We all there, everybody? you got everything written down that you wanted to have written down? Be tracking behind, you need me to back up one slide or anything like that? Everybody got it? Yeah, Diane. It can, but the page—I'd have to make more pages. I can do that, but, but yeah, you can't see it. What if I move the TV closer? You Yeah, most of most of this stuff is in the book, right? Right, right. So most of it is in the syllabus. There are going to be some things that are, and I've tried to make those bigger. Yeah, right, Jason. Maybe, maybe if you have a hard time seeing, you can get here earlier and get a seat up front. Or pay the higher price ticket, I don't know, whatever it is. Jackie. <laughs> I haven't seen the check yet, though. <laughs> Apparently, apparently they have it on Zoom, and there's a camera here looking at all you people, and this camera here is looking at the screen, and then there's a camera somewhere else looking at me. I believe they're recording it and putting it on the website. Okay. All right. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody have a syllabus? We, get, we have finally some more printed. Jason needs one up front here. And, and up here, Debbie, right up here. And you mentioned the book. Well, I, I didn't mention a book. Okay. I've mentioned that there are hermeneutics books. Yeah, I'm not suggesting one in particular. There are several. Um, and, and all of them have their difficulties. That's why I don't want to really suggest one. Because I like some things in some and not others. Yeah, Joe. There will be a list, by the way, in here, in, sorry, in, in here about some books that you can kind of refer to. Yeah, Joe. Yeah, it just means looking at something with a critical eye. That's That's all we mean. Just looking at something with a critical eye. In other words... Making determinations about something. We all, we all really, in our daily lives, are, are, are uh, we criticize. We, that, that word's used so negatively because it usually has negative connotations. But really, when we're talking about historical criticism or, or higher criticism or lower criticism, it's making determinations. They're taking the text, measuring it up between other texts, and making determinations as to what was the original. That's what we mean. Yeah, that's, that's why I have to okay. That yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Russ. Back one slide. Hopefully I can do this. Uh, let's see here. All right. I'll going to do it this way. Oh, okay. Well, hold on. right here. Do you want the you want the definitions of higher and lower criticism in there? Okay, hold on, it will be just a minute. Just a minute. <clears throat> okay. So that was back a few slides. Yeah. You got it. This is, this is a, a process. We're trying to figure this out. If, if I'd have known 75 of you were going to show up, I might have done it different. Maybe we had two TVs in here. something I don't know. Anyway. All right. So we're going right here. So historical criticism, examining the historical background and context of the books of the Bible, that's what it means. <clears throat> Exegesis just puts the work of those rules of hermeneutics into practice. Exposition is the communication of the meaning of the text along with any. I didn't, I didn't because I I wanted to do it now. And I'll give you. Oh, see, now I got to back up again. Man. And I'm going to have to go through them again. Not a bad idea from the back if you want to get your phone out, take a picture and zoom it up and you can see what's there. Well, you're sitting in the front. Somebody in the front row said it's pretty big. <laughs> All right, let me know when we're when we're moving on. As you saw from the next slide, there's four steps in this overall process. Everybody got those? Okay. Four steps. One... We have to gather the material. This is just general. Two, organize the material. Three, interact with the material. And then four, think through the effective. Methods of communicating the material <clears throat> now what are we talking about when we say material we're just talking about the bible the the biblical text the the passage, the verse, whatever it is we're we're working on to understand from the Bible gather the material, the text itself, historical background information um, and I, next week I'll bring out some of those books out of my library where I can just kind of show you. Some of the things that I use to get historical background and things like that. Organize all that material together. Study through that material, praying over it, interacting with it. And of course, I'm just introducing all of this. So this is just general topics. We're going to do those very things over the next several times that we're together so that you can kind of understand these kinds of things. So hermeneutics establishes the rules for proper understanding and insight in gathering the meaning of the text, while homiletics, you heard me mention that, just focuses on the presentation of the material. So Don't get confused when you hear those terms. Um, hermeneutics is the study. Somebody's car I think a squirrel's trying to drive it off. Well, it's in the front row, so it's right up right up here. I don't know who it is. You know, hermeneutics is the study of the <clears throat> methods, principles, techniques, or rules for biblical interpretation. Determining the correct meaning of any passage of scripture while exegesis is the process or the activity of putting those into use to determine or draw out, I should say, the meaning of a biblical text. You cannot have application of a text in your life until you understand the meaning. Yes. Homiletics is the art, the art of just presenting the material. Right. So application has to be drawn from your hermeneutical process of understanding the biblical text. How do you know if you're doing something God wants you to do if you don't understand what God said? Right? So you have to understand that. We far too often jump to application right away. Right? We say, Oh, I read this verse. This is what it means. And you don't know. How do you know? You have to be able to know. Right? Because someone else comes along and says it means something different. And so how do you determine that? The only way to determine that is through a hermeneutical process. So that's what we have that's what we are dealing with when we're talking about this whole issue of hermeneutics. Let me just show you that. That's basically what I just told you is what this page says, and I read it because it's too small for everybody in the back. You should—I think—you may have all that information though in your in your syllabus. Okay. So here's the exegetical pyramid, right? You have observation or seeing the content, seeing what you're looking at in Scripture. Hermeneutics is with that, and then you move up the pyramid to exegesis, drawing out from the text what it means. From that meaning, you draw your theological implications or correlations theologically. Does, is this talking about some, some sin issue? So is it talking about the sin of man? Is it talking about salvation? Is it talking about some other theological principle that you might... Ooh, there we go. I hit the button. Thanks for being patient. personal application from that or or you're putting it into practice in your own life and then you can teach that to others. So homiletics, the exposition, and then of course edification just means to build up one another. So remember we're still talking about hermeneutics and its effect or effect on other theological disciplines. We started with canonization and we're going all the way down through several other What about biblical theology? Biblical theology, right? Biblical theology recognizes progressive revelation. What do we mean by progressive revelation? We mean simply this, that that the New Testament writers knew more of God's revelatory plan than the Old Testament writers did. God's revelation was progressive over Time that doesn 't mean God was making it up as he went. that just means that God revealed his plan over time more and more okay so it 's the unfolding of god 's plan, and so when we biblical theology when we think about biblical theology, we think about it recognizing that progressive revelation of scripture and its unfolding of meaning within the context of each book right Genesis. And revelation have been separated by 1,400 years of writing. And so God's revelation was different in those things. And I gave an example there in those verses. Matthew 5.38, Jesus says, You have heard it said, right? Well, let's turn there just so you can see it. Verse 38 says, you have heard it said that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Was Jesus just making up words there to say that? No. Jesus is quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting from Exodus chapter 21. That's where the text talks about that in the the sense of your relationship with other people. If these certain things happened, there was a commensurate penalty for certain things that you did by way of neglect with other people. And so Jesus is saying, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but progressively over time, Jesus said, but I say to you, right, this is the same God from the Old Testament that's saying to you now in the New Testament, don't resist Him who does evil. In well, other words, there's a revelatory change. Whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other one also. So that's, that's the idea. That's the idea. You get, you get the carrying out of that Old Testament principle, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, with Simeon and Levi as they take revenge upon Shechem because those men defiled their sister, and so they're mad at them. And so when those men had made a pact with Israel and had to get circumcised in an older age, they're all trying to heal, and those two brothers went in and killed all the people, all the men. Nine for nine, an a tooth for two. That was the rule. And Jesus now in Matthew five is progressively showing it differently. So biblical theology is concerned with two main facets. <clears throat> One is the distinctive theory of the writer. In other words, who wrote this, who they were, when did they write, when did they live, those kinds of things. John, Paul, Peter, where they were in the process of progressive revelation, right? They grew up in a different time than Moses grew up. It doesn't mean the rules are different, that just means they knew more in the sense of God's progressive plan. So you have distinctive... Theory of the writers. And then, two, you have the periods of the writers, the distinctive revelatory periods. When we say revelatory, we mean revelation, God giving them His word. So, was it pre fall? Was it before the fall? Was it after the fall? Was it during the time of the patriarchs? Was it during apostolic periods? The New Testament, again, that doesn't mean that the writers of Scripture contradict each other when it comes to an understanding of God and an understanding of God's revelation and an understanding of God's redemptive history. All it simply means is that each person contributes a distinct emphasis and a distinct style in what they've given us in Scripture, a distinct terminology based upon the history in which they, God had give, put them in. So they're not contradicting each other. They're just giving us their understanding from that perspective. When we talk about the periods, right? God had an overall plan throughout history. God's redemptive history has not changed. But it was given, as I've said, progressively. And so it reveals different aspects of God's truth in different stages and times as God intended it for men during those times when they were ready to receive it as He had designed it. So theology during the pre-mosaic time when I mean when I say pre-mosaic time I mean before Moses theology before the mosaic covenant when God spoke to Moses it's not as full it's not as complete if you will and final in showing God's redemptive plans right there was no incarnate Christ that they knew about as a whole. So it's not as full as it is in latter times in the fulfillment that we see in Jesus Christ. So biblical theology recognizes that. True biblical theology recognizes that God gradually uncovered His redemptive plan in many parts. And when we say many parts, books, right? We can say many parts as the books And in many ways, right? And we know that because the Bible tells us that. Hebrews chapter 1 tells us this very truth. God, verse 1, Hebrews 1, verse 1, God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, right in many portions god through different time periods and different ways right through dreams and visions and these kinds of things but in these last days he has spoken to us in his son jesus christ so we have the most of god's revelation because jesus christ has come the full living Word of God. So that's what I was talking about from here. I didn't know if that was going to show up in the back, but that's what I was talking about. Which one? Uh, The distinctive theory of the writer, and it just was John, Paul, or Peter, those things as example. Well, just, just because of the progressive revelation that God had given. So their distinctive historically is going to be different than the pre-Mosaic or anything like that. So that's what I'm saying. As they wrote, their, their perspective is going to be a different perspective than that before. Be uh, more filled out, if you will. Is that what you're asking? Hermeneutics of thought. <laughs> yeah. I have the same thing. I think it's hard to ask the word theory than possible thought. Are you asking the question the difference between between the theory and regulatory? Yeah, I I I'm not meaning it in that way that it's a guess, but just simply that their perspective uh, as from, from the time in which they lived brought all of that history that they knew into their time and then their time as well. So theirs is going to be a different distinctive writing than if they're a guy who came earlier who doesn't have that new history. Well, there's going, to be a, there's going to be both, right? The people are different, but the periods are different. So you have both of those factors going into what they're writing. What I'm trying to say is God used those people in, 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 how, in the time period in which he created them to be in in order to give us the revelation that he gave us for those time periods. Does that make sense? To that point. It probably is. We'll, 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 we'll do it in the first update. Yeah. Okay. What's the last line on the previous slide say? Okay, now you're confusing me. Yeah, hold on. Bottom of the second, but it does mean that each person contributes distinctive emphasis style terminology. Is that what you're saying? Is that what you're asking about? Okay. So, we need a little lower criticism on your notes. Okay. Yeah. We, we all. We'll disagree to disagree. All right. So, we're caught up to here, right? This is where we're at. Only 72 more slides for tonight. So, we're getting there. Just kidding. Just kidding. It also involves systematic theology, of course. If you've been around the church at all in any kind of way, you understand that systematic theology is uh, just a way of compiling and organizing, right? The uh, system, the systematizing of teaching, I should say, of the whole Bible and its themes. I think this will come up if I hit this. Oh, no, it won't. Okay. Okay, so we're back there. So, systematic theology just simply does that. It organizes and systematizes the teaching of the whole Bible in various themes. That's why we have theologies that we call hamardiology, which is the doctrine of sin. The doctrine of sin. Or you hear about angelology, which is the doctrines that deal with angels. Or you hear... Theology proper, which is learning about God and His characteristics and His attributes and these kinds of things. All these different theologies that you hear about, bibliology, which is the study of the Bible as a whole, um, or uh, many of the other ones that are that are in any theology book, hermeneutics helps do that. Right? So systematizing our theologies enables us as those who are looking at the Scripture and gaining understanding of the Scripture to have a comprehensive view of what the Bible might say on any one of those topics. So when you're talking about bibliology or when you're talking about Christology, which is the doctrine of Christ, systematizing that just takes all of the places in Scripture that speak specifically on that issue and gives that to you in a in a package. In a package. So that's what systematic theology is. So it's 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 the theologies that we glean from His revelation and His Word, and also the natural world around us because general revelation is God's creation around us that we understand the natural attributes of God, don't we? Romans chapter 1 tells us that. We can look around and see his invisible attributes. They're clearly seen by what he's made, Romans 1 tells us. So general revelation, that's what we call that, tells us things about God. And then special revelation, which is his word, tells us, about God. And we understand God through those things. So when we talk about creation and how things were made, we can look around and see the reality of a designer. And then you open up Genesis and read how God created things. And you go, oh, okay, now I'm I'm understanding that. You don't look at it and go, hey, that tree got there because it evolved over 50 years or 100 years or 1,000 years. You don't say that. You don't find a fish on the top of a mountain in a fossil and say, well, fish must have lived on mountains. You don't do that. You go back and you read the history of God's creation and what He has done and the things that have happened in the world according to what the Scriptures teach. you realize that there was a worldwide flood and that that would have left all those things in places that would have confounded man by just looking at it. So that's how hermeneutics affects systematic theology. And then it affects historical theology as well. So historical theology just records how these theologies have played themselves out, and I use that word loosely, in the church. How that struggle has gone on over the centuries in the church. And those beliefs from Scripture that have drawn the lines between why we believe what we believe and why we don't. So when there was battles over the doctrine of whether Christ was deity or not, In 325, there was a council in Nicaea in 325 A.D. that battled over that and they went to scriptures to understand that. That's what it was determined on. And so the things we understand about the deity of Christ have been been fought over the decades and centuries and millennia. In order that what we understand now, we understand from history as well as we go to the scriptures and we look at those things and say, yeah, they got it right. They got it right. So these doctrines are fundamental to our faith. And we need them systematized because the church tends to lose doctrine. It doesn't systematize. So historical theology helps us do that. All right, how are we doing? How's everybody doing? Good. How much time we got? What times this class finish? Anybody know? I don't know. I don't know. Thursday. That's right. All right, we got. Let's. Let me see here. I Only got like two, two and a half pages, so we're good. All right, types of hermeneutics. Let's just talk about them for a minute. Types of hermeneutics. General hermeneutics, right? General hermeneutics. What is general hermeneutics? General hermeneutics involves principles of interpretation that serve comprehensively in a general way for all of Scripture. Right? So you have to be aware of certain rules that apply wherever you are in the Bible. There are certain rules that apply to that. No matter what the type of literature, that's what the word genre means, no matter what type of genre you're in, whether it's a historical book, whether it's a prophecy book, whether it's a poetic book, um, you have to, no matter what genre you're in, the principles always apply to your interpretive process. Call that general hermeneutics. And then you have special hermeneutics. What is special hermeneutics? Just more specialized rules that you bring in while you're interpreting certain types of biblical literature. So you're going to put some other things into practice when you're looking at and maybe in a more concentrated way. I won't even say that those principles aren't used in all of your hermeneutics, but but maybe in a more concentrated way as you look at literature like prophecy and and uh, certain poetic portions of Scripture and things like that. So there's some some special hermeneutics rules. So the general or perspective principles that we're talking about, that's really what they are, general principles, general and specific, they have to be supplemented by these special rules that are helpful in getting to that kind of material, typology, prophecies, poetic sections, Typology is like the, uh, somebody from the Old Testament that is a type of Christ like David, who is the king, was a type. Not that he is Christ in any kind of way, but Christ is a, uh, the outworking of what David might have pictured in the Old Testament. These kinds of things. Of course, parables become sometimes difficult for us. How many of you think in Luke chapter 10. In fact, just go there for a minute. This is just on the issue of parables. Some of you are going to know the answer to this because I've talked to people about this in the past here. Luke chapter 10, it's a very familiar passage to us beginning in verse 30. This is a a parable or story that Jesus is sharing, and you have a title probably in your Bibles that's written in large font or with dark font called the Good Samaritan. That's what it's titled, right? We all have heard the story of the Good Samaritan. We all talk about the Good Samaritan. We even have Good Samaritan laws in our country that if someone's broken down on the side of the road and hurting or whatever, you stop to help them. It's Good Samaritan laws. How many of you believe today that Luke chapter 10 verse 30 and following is about that? Is it about being a good Samaritan? Is it about helping your neighbor? Because that's what the good Samaritan's all about, at least in Jesus thing. Is it about helping your neighbor? how many how many say it is i know i'm asking the question and you're going this is a trick question i don't want to say it is yeah yeah sure they do right sure but is do we get that do we get that principle from the bible and this passage that talks about the good samaritan Or the Samaritan that helped the man on the side of the road who was beaten? Has to do with showing mercy? we got one answer. Somebody's brave. Has to do with showing mercy. Anybody else? Joe. Okay. Has to do with loving somebody you have animosity with, somebody you hate. Is that what it's about? You don't get the answer. <laughs> it goes what? Who's my neighbor? It goes back to who's my neighbor? Everybody's your neighbor. Let me say something. Let me let me just say this passage has nothing to do with being nice to your neighbor. What? What? I've always thought it had everything to do with that. Nope. Why? Because in the scriptures, you have to go back a little bit and find out what this is talking about. Right? Jesus is replying to someone who's talking to him. Who's he replying to? He's replying. you got to go back to verse 25 to find out. To a lawyer who stands up and asks him a question. Teacher, what shall I what? Do to do what? Oh, wait a minute. That changes everything. What must I do to be saved? Jesus, what must I do... To earn eternal salvation. What's Jesus say to him? What does What's written in the law? Now, this seems like a strange answer, doesn't it? Well, not really. If he's a lawyer and he wants to keep the law, Jesus says, what's the law say? What's the Mosaic law say? That's what we're talking about. I'm not talking about the law written in our downtown or that the police applied to us. We're talking about the Mosaic law. This is a Jewish religious person who applied the Mosaic law strictly. So he's saying, Jesus, what laws do I have to apply to my life for me to gain eternal salvation? Is that a problem? Can you, can you keep the law to gain your eternal salvation? Not even close. So Jesus says, what's the law say? If you want to keep your salvation that way, What's the law say? Jesus isn't saying you could earn it that way. But this is a lawyer who wants to do that. So what's the law say? How does it read to you? Isn't that interesting? That's what we do with the Scriptures. So what does it say to you? Jesus says, tell me your interpretation of the Bible. Tell me your interpretation, really, of what I gave. And he answers and says, well, here's what it says. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself, right? Love the Lord your God, and love your neighbor. Of God and your neighbor. Right? So he quotes the, the overarching principles of the Mosaic Law. Jesus says, good, you've answered correctly. Do that, and you'll live. Do that, and you'll live. In other words, do it perfectly be perfect, never make a mistake, never do it wrong, be perfect. The guy goes, wait a minute, okay, let me recalculate, can't do that. So he says, wishing to justify himself, he says to Jesus, okay, who's my neighbor then? In other words, implying I already love God with my whole heart, so if you just tell me who my neighbor is, I can take care of that and I'm in. So Jesus tells him the parable of the Good Samaritan. It has nothing to do with the parable of the Good Samaritan. It has everything to do with this guy's question. How can I save myself? Jesus talks about this. We don't even know if this is a real story. We don't know if this was a a real thing. All we know is Jesus tells this story of a man who's going down to Jericho from Jerusalem. He's robbed. And by chance a priest goes by, he doesn't help him. That's a religious guy. A Levite goes by, he doesn't help him. That's another religious guy. But a certain Samaritan, a guy who was a half-breed Jew, who the Jews never want anything to do with, who wouldn't help anybody, stops. So this lawyer is hearing Jesus talk about this one that he would even have hated. He comes on him and he, of course, helps him out. And so Jesus asks him in verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell into robber? And the man, of course, says, I suppose the one who showed mercy toward him. Jesus says, yep, that's true. Now go and do the same. Well, he wasn't going to do that. He wasn't going to do that. So this passage, beloved, has nothing to do with being merciful to the guy on the side of the road. This passage has everything to do with Helping us understand that you cannot earn your salvation by keeping any kind of rules. You cannot do it. It's impossible. It's impossible. You say you love God? Great. Do you love your neighbor? Well, will I help out? I'm a nice person. Perfectly? Without fail ever? Your whole life, from the day you took your first breath until the day you die? all perfect? Obviously not. That's what this passage is about. So, why do I say that? You have to remember this. You have to remember this. Right, if we just took verse 30 to 37 as our text and tried to draw meaning from just those verses, then it is a text without a context. And a text without a context is a pretext for you just trying to proof text something. See how that works? That's hermeneutics. That's part of hermeneutics. You have to understand the context. You've heard me say it here in our church. You've heard other people say it. Context, context, context. Context, context, context. So is that kind of... Kind of wet your whistle a little bit. I know it was kind of boring, kind of drudging, kind of going through the slugging through the mud just to kind of get our groundwork going. But we got to do that because some of us, some of us don't understand what hermeneutics even is, so we have to go there. All right, so we had to start here. So there is an importance to proper hermeneutics. There's an importance to proper hermeneutics because it helps us understand what God means by what He says as God wants us to understand it. And if we don't do that, we can find ourselves in all kinds of trouble, all kinds of weeds that we don't need to be in. Let me just read this quote for us. I think you have it in your in your book, but it may not be. But let me just ask. Bernard Rahm, <clears throat> about the importance of proper hermeneutics, just said this, and then we'll close in a word of prayer. So, this is the primary and basic need of hermeneutics. To ascertain what God has said in sacred scripture, to determine the meaning of the word of God, there is no profit to us if God has spoken and we do not know what he has said. The result of an erratic hermeneutics is that the Bible has been made the source of confusion rather than the source of light. We want to make sure we understand what God means by what He says so that we're saying what God says. We'll, we'll get more in two weeks. Two weeks. Question? Any questions before we close in prayer? Did you have one? No. No, that's not homework. We'll, we'll, we'll cover that in review next week. That's just talking more about why it's important to have a proper hermeneutic. It's just a few verses from 1 Timothy that talk about that. About uh, 2 Timothy and, and 1 Timothy that talk about that. and We can cover that next time. Any questions? All right, now you know how many people are here. I'll get you in a second. You know how many people here? If you want a front row seat, you've got to come early. Diane. Well, because they're both using them as, as part of their science of interpretation. I'm just trying to help you understand. Higher criticism is a liberal source that doesn't believe in inerrancy and, and inspiration but they're still using it as a part of their interpretive process. It's not how they need to use it, but it's wrong. Lower criticism takes the Scriptures as they are, the Word of God, inerrant, infallible, inspired, and then makes their decisions based on that. Okay? All right. Now let's pray. Father, we thank You for tonight. What an opportunity to just be together and to just mull over these things and to have our minds stretched. Lord, I hope these things are clear in the hearts of Your people. Lord, help us to, to uh, begin to think through these things and think about them in practice so that when we look to the Scriptures, when we think about the Scriptures, when we, we, we think about them rightly, we know that they're Your Word And that we can come away with your meaning. Not our meaning, not what we've put into it, but what you mean. And then we can begin to put it into practice in our life and our heart. Lord, I pray for um, each one here. I pray that if there are some among us who do not know you as their Savior, that they would come to know you. Because without the Spirit's illuminating and indwelling in us, Uh, We can understand words, but we don't understand really what you're meaning. So thank you for the Spirit. So bless us as we go. Keep us safe. And may you be honored in our lives. In Christ's name, amen.